I invite you to join me in Hebrews 7 if you're not there already. Hebrews 7, verses 11 to 28. We have a big chunk to get through this morning uh, and lots to cover, lots of important stuff to cover. And so we will get going right away this morning. Let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, even as we have just confessed in song, this morning we come boldly before you and in Christ alone, our perfect high priest, before the throne of God. Heavenly Father, we recognize this morning that our hope is not in ourselves. It's not in the way that we have dressed, the good deeds that we have done in this past week, how much money we put in the offering plate. Heavenly Father, we know ourselves and we know that we are utterly wicked. We know that, that even like those in the book of Malachi, as we saw this morning in uh, Sunday school, even as we try to explain away our sin, we just dig ourselves into a deeper hole. For we are utterly wicked. And even our righteousness is as filthy rags. Our hope this morning is not in ourselves. It is in Christ alone. Our perfect, fitting high priest. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning as we open this passage that this would not just be a truth that we know, but that we would see the, 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 the very practical implications, the hope that is ours in Christ, that this would be a truth that penetrates to the very depths of our soul, that impacts us and changes us for the gospel, that we may go forth and sing this new truth to the world around us, that we would shine forth as lights to a dark world, proclaiming the goodness of our God and the hope that is theirs, that is ours in Jesus Christ. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. One of the most famous sermons preached in the last few hundred years is Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. If you've never read the sermon itself, it's probably one you've at least heard of. It's a powerful sermon where Jonathan Edwards paints a picture of, of, of his, those listening literally dangling over the pit of hell. God did some amazing things through that sermon. The title of that sermon itself kind of grabs your attention and pulls you in. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. I was thinking back this past week over sermons that have impacted my life. There's one in particular, John Piper preached a sermon called Boasting Only in the Cross back in the early 2000s. In fact, this is the sermon through which his book, um, Don't Waste Your Life, kind of those thoughts kind of came through and he formed them into that book. Boasting Only in the Cross. As a young man, it's a sermon that had a great impact on me. Even that one, the, the title of that sermon, Boasting Only in the Cross. It's a title, again, that grabs your attention and pulls you in. It's something I, I know I should do. How can I do this better? Another sermon that had a big impact on me on a young man, uh, as a young man uh, is a sermon preached by Paul Washer. And really, I looked everywhere for a title to this sermon. I can't find an actual title. Everywhere, it's just called a shocking youth message. 
I don't know if you've ever heard this message, but Paul Washer was preaching at a, a gathering of teens, and uh, he was preaching to them about missions, and, and they'd had this worship band on the stage, and all these silly games going on, and they all got off the stage, and he got up there, and he called them to repentance and Jesus Christ. He said right from the beginning, let's get serious. And as a young man, I had a friend who gave me that sermon and said, you need to listen to this in high school. And God used that mightily in my life. Again, just the, the title that was written on that little CD he gave me, and the title, a shocking youth message. You want to find out what's so shocking about this. Another one, shortly after Chris and I had moved here, we went to a conference, and D.A. Carson preached a message at that conference called, How Long, O Lord, Steadying Our Soul in the Midst of the Storm. It was, a song, it was a sermon based on revelation and the hope that we have. Looking at the, the coming persecution in America. And yet, even in the midst of that, we have hope. Again, it's a sermon that grabbed my attention. How long, O oh Lord, setting our soul in the midst of the storm? We all go through storms. We all need that setting. Many of these sermons have titles that grab our attention. They pull us in. In fact, the very title of some of these ser ser sermons starts the work of bringing conviction, of promising hope, and of call and calls for rejoicing. In reality, the title of a sermon is not that important. But if you are like me, and you're scrolling through sermonaudio.com, or you're looking for a sermon to listen to on a podcast, you're drawn to those sermons that grab your attention, those titles that grab your attention. So this morning we come to Hebrews 7, 11 to 28. And I've titled the message, A Fitting High Priest. A Fitting High Priest. See, that's not probably a title that grabs your attention right away. In fact, as you came in this morning, you took your seat and you opened your bulletin and you're just looking through the songs that we're going to sing and maybe you saw the title, A Fitting High Priest. And you found yourself utterly unimpressed or, or unexcited for the hour ahead. He couldn't come up with a better title than a fitting high priest? The word fitting just doesn't inspire excitement or anticipation the way a word like great or awesome would. And yet I hope that you will bear with me this morning. And that through the, the course of this passage, you will see that a fitting high priest is exactly what we need. I hope to show you this morning, with the help of the Holy Spirit and the author of Hebrews, through this passage, how having a fitting high priest is not just good news for us, but it is everything. It is a truth that should thrill our souls. All of our hope is tied to a high priest who fits our need. Because the reality is, if we did not have a high priest who fit our need, then we would pay a penalty that fits our crime. And so this morning we will work our way through this passage. And we will rejoice together that in Jesus Christ, in the sovereign plans of God, we have a perfectly fitting high priest. And so this morning we'll see a better priesthood and a better priest. First thing we see in verses 11 and 19 here in chapter 7 is a better priesthood. A better priesthood. Therefore, the author of Hebrews starts out, therefore, 
Last week we were in the first ten verses of chapter 7. In those first ten verses, the author of Hebrews lays a foundation. If you will, if you remember the illustration from last week, he, he sets the, the um, perimeter, the, the outline of the puzzle so that we can work inward. He's, he's laying a foundation on which to build. And so last week, he, he meticulously established the superiority of Melchizedek over Abraham. Melchizedek is superior to Abraham. And therefore, Melchizedek's priesthood is greater than to any priesthood that came from Abraham, including the Levitical priesthood. But what does that mean? Why does that matter? Why are we comparing? This man is better to that man. What, what does it all mean? And that's where the author of Hebrews goes this morning. Therefore, therefore, based on the foundation laid last week, the author of Hebrews now goes on to show the limitations of the Levitical priesthood and the necessity of another better priest. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? If perfection were through the Levitical priesthood. The word perfection is a word that means reconciliation with God. Complete access to God. Really what the author of Hebrews is saying here is if the priesthood through Levi and if the law that goes along with that priesthood could save what does that imply right from the beginning? That the law and the priesthood never could save. There was no salvation through Levi. There was no salvation through the law. They cannot save. If perfection, if salvation. He's implying right from the beginning that salvation was never possible through the law. It's always been by faith alone. Always. In fact, notice the connection here between the priesthood and the law. If perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law. The priesthood and the law are uniquely tied together. In fact, this is a point that the author of Hebrews will highlight again in verse 12. The law and the priesthood are intimately tied together. The duty and the need for a priest is tied to the law that they serve under. I think uh, an illustration that would make sense in our day would be uh, a judge. Judges are not meant to be agents of a political party, but servants of the law. They are tied intimately to the law. Their purpose is tied directly to the law that they serve under. If the law is abolished, then there would be no need for a judge to interpret or uphold that law. If the law were just completely changed. We would need a whole new judicial system because they are tied to the law. It's the same with the priesthood. The priesthood and the law are tied together. And if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood and the law that goes with it, then there would be no need for another priest. That's what he says. What further need was there? There would be no need. There would be no need. 
Which further need was there that another priest should arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not called according to the order of Aaron? For, verse 12, the priesthood being changed, of necessity there is also a change of the law. Now here's a question, what further need was there? The author of Hebrews here is arguing that if, uh, is arguing as if it is an established fact that another priest must come after the order of Melchizedek. His whole argument is, if perfection could come through Levi and through the law, then why would another priest need to come? He's assuming that another priest does need to come, or has come. And here's a question for you. Why does he assume that? Why is there a need for another priest? Why could Jesus not have come as a Levitical priest in the line of Aaron? Why do we need a priest from another priesthood? Why do we need to take all this time establishing that Melchizedek is better than Abraham? That he has a priesthood that is better than the priesthood that comes through earth? Why? There's several logistical problems regarding the promises that God made specifically to David that Jesus would come through his line. There's, how could Jesus come through both lines? But the answer really is very simple here. It is an established fact because God said that it would happen. In Psalm 110.4, God said that it would happen. Psalm 110.4, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. At that point, it is established that at some point, another priest will arise according to the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110, it's very clear. God the Father is speaking to his promised seed, Messiah. There's kingly language in the first three verses, and there's priestly language in verse 4. And verse 4 declares very strongly, as the author of Hebrews will go on to note in a few verses, that this one must be a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. See, the author of Hebrews here is masterfully building his case off of the purposeful language of Psalm 110.4. Because Psalm 110.4 demands that another priesthood must arise. God said that it would. Speaking to Messiah, he said, you will be a priest forever, not according to the order of Levi or Aaron, but according to the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110.4 demands that another priesthood must arise. And if another priesthood must arise, that indicates the inadequacy and the limited nature of the current priesthood. Are you following the logic there? If in Psalm 110.4, God says, you will be a priesthood according to this other, you will be a priest according to this other priesthood that will arise after the order of Melchizedek, not according to the order of Aaron or Levi. That implies that the priesthood of Levi and Aaron is limited in nature. That it has an end. That there is a need for another one, for a better one. And that better one goes all the way back to Melchizedek, who is better. You see, Jesus cannot be a priest after the order of Levi because Jesus' purpose goes beyond the scope and capability of the Levitical priesthood and of the law. The mere existence of Psalm 110.4 in the Old Testament should have made it obvious that another, better priesthood was coming. A better priesthood after the order of this man who has already been shown to be superior to Abraham, Melchizedek. Are you following the thinking in these first several verses? Are you following what I'm saying? 
Psalm 110.4 demands that another priest another priesthood arise. And in demanding that, it shows that this priesthood, the Levitical priesthood and the law, is limited. It cannot fulfill God's plan. There's another one that's coming, a better one. In verses 13 to 17 then, now he goes on to a better priest. A better priest. Not just this better priesthood, but a better priest. Who is this priest? For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. Now pause there for a second. He of whom these things are spoken. What are these things? Because the author of Hebrews is making a very important point to note here. Who, 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 what are these things? These things, and verse 13 ties back to Psalm 110.4. This promise that God has made that there will be a king priest who will rise after the order of Melchizedek. And these things, spoken all the way in the Old Testament, this, the author of Hebrews ties directly to Jesus Christ. Jesus is that one that God promised. Jesus is Messiah. He is this king priest to whom we have looked and longed. Jesus from the tribe of Judah. Jesus from the line of kings that God had promised Jesus. Jesus' lineage is a proven and known fact. In fact, it's a very important part of his identity. Even in Revelation, he's called the lion from the tribe of Judah. So it's evident that Jesus is not from the tribe of Levi. As the author of Hebrews says here, he of whom these things are spoken, Jesus, belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. He doesn't come from the tribe of priests. For it's evident that our Lord arose from Judah. This is an established fact. And Judah is not the tribe from which priests come, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning the priesthood. Jesus is not qualified to be a priest according to the law and according to the, um, what God set up through Levi. He doesn't come through there. He's not qualified to be a Levitical priest. Yet, he has been promised a priesthood. And so it's even more evident that in order to be a priest, Jesus' priesthood must be based on something other than genealogy. Again, it is yet far more evident. All right, so he's not qualified to be a Levitical priest because he's not from that tribe. He's from the tribe of Judah. And yet he's promised to be a priest. And so it's even more evident that if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come, not according to the law of fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. According to the power of an endless life. Jesus' priesthood must be based on something other than genealogy. And here, it ties back into Melchizedek. Jesus is like Melchizedek in two ways. Number one, he is called specifically by God to be a priest. In fact, the author of Hebrews will go on to make that point even stronger. And two, he is qualified to be a priest not by genealogy, 
but by his power over death. By his power over death. According to the power of an endless life. Once again, here the author of Hebrews focuses in on that one word in Psalm 110.4, that one word that we pointed out last week. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Forever. In order to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek, Jesus must have power over death. He must be able to live forever. Otherwise, he's not qualified. Praise the Lord that Jesus is. Here's a direct reference to Jesus' resurrection, which qualifies him to be a priest promised in Psalm 110.4. Because Jesus is risen, we have hope. Because Jesus has conquered death, he can be a priest forever. Just as God promised, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. We see a better priesthood promised by God all the way back in Psalm 110.4. We see a better priest who's qualified to be a priest, not just by blood, not by family ties, but by his resurrection and power. Then you see a better hope, verses 18 to 19. For on the one hand, There is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the one hand, there is the bringing of a better hope through which we draw near to God. You see, what Hebrews verses 11 and 12 strongly allude to, that perfection is not possible. If perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, it's not here in Hebrews 7 to 18, it it's clearly states the law made nothing perfect. And so because of its unprofitableness in producing perfection, the Levitical priesthood and the law have been annulled. They've been set aside. Their course has been run. Their purpose has been fulfilled. The testimony of the New Testament is that the the purpose of the law was never to save. In fact, that's what the author of Hebrews started with. If perfection were through the Levitical. It, It was never meant to be through there. It was never through that. The Levitical priesthood in the law was never meant to save. But it was a tutor whose purpose was to bring us to Christ, as Paul says in Galatians 3, 24 to 25. The law shows the problem, but it does not provide a solution. It shows a problem. It shows the need to a solution, and it points forward to a coming solution, but it itself does not offer a solution. And here the author of Hebrews is making the point that as far as salvation goes, the law is entirely unprofitable. There is no salvation in the law. There was no salvation to the Levitical priesthood, to the sacrifices. In fact, now that Christ has come, there is nothing in that priesthood and in that law that, that has any benefit whatsoever to his audience, this audience that is so tempted to be drawn back to its familiarity, 
I think that's what we often miss as we are studying Hebrews. That the author of Hebrews is writing to a people who are drawn there. We, we, we are tempted by our, our own goodness. Yeah, I'm pretty good. I can do this. But they were literally drawn to that priesthood and that law. They wanted to run back to that, to put themselves under that. That was comfortable to them. That's what they grew up under. That was home. And the author of Hebrews is, is striving here to show them that yes, that was good and it served a purpose, but now it is unprofitable because there is a better priest from a better priesthood that offers a better hope. Jesus Christ, through this better priesthood, brings a better hope. The law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. See, the best that the law could do was to show that we were sinners and that forgiveness would one day come. The priests, through their yearly sacrifices, point to one who will one day cover their sins and make them as white as snow. The priest who once a year would go into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God by himself, would show that it is coming, that there will be possible to come into the presence of God through a better sacrifice. But it is not this, and it is not now. This is just a shadow. This is just a promise that forgiveness is coming. The law offered no real forgiveness and no real access to God. And yet Jesus Christ offers both full forgiveness and full access to draw near to God. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of everything that the law and the Levitical priesthood looked forward to and pointed to. And as the first several verses of Romans 8 so beautifully proclaim, Jesus offers what the law cannot offer because Jesus does what the law cannot do. So in these first eight verses, not only does the author of Hebrews prove the superiority of Jesus' priesthood, but he shows the weakness of the Levitical priesthood. The Levitical priesthood and the law that they serve under was never meant to last. It was limited in scope. The mere existence of Psalm 110.4 shows us from the very beginning there that, that it was never meant to last. There was promised to be another priesthood. Another weakness of this priesthood was that under the law, a priest was qualified to be a priest, not by merit, not by anything special or unique about them, not that they were any better than anyone else, but just by the fact that they were born into a family that did it. The Levitical priesthood was never meant to save. It opened eyes to the reality of sin, but it provided no real salvation from sin. In contrast, Jesus has been called by God to be a priest. Proven through his defeat of death, through resurrection, to be qualified to be a priest of an eternal priesthood, and thereby ensuring forgiveness and a better eternal hope. The forgiveness that the law could only point to is the forgiveness that Jesus brings. 
The promise of access into the presence of God was just a promise under the law. Under Jesus Christ, it is a reality. It's a better priesthood with a better priest and a better hope. Secondly, in verses 28 to 20, 20 to 28, the author of Hebrews really kind of zeroes in on this priest himself, Jesus Christ. There seems to be a, a, a bit of a shift here in verses 20 to 27 as the author of Hebrews zooms in from the general superiority of the priesthood to the specific superiority of Jesus, the priest. Verse 20, And as much as he was not made priest without an oath, he there, Jesus Christ, was not made priest without an oath. For they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath, by whom it was said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not relent, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Here the author of Hebrews begins by focusing on the certainty of Jesus' priesthood. It's a priesthood that will never end, not only because Jesus has conquered death, but also because God himself has promised that it will last forever. You see, Jesus does not fill a temporary void. He fulfills a promise. He was made a priest by an oath from God himself. Inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath. That's kind of a confusing sentence. All it means is that he was made priest with an oath. He's a priest because God promised that he would be a priest. And God sent him and God accomplished that. It wasn't too long ago in Hebrews 6, 18, where the author of Hebrews talked about another oath that God made, an oath to Abraham. And you'll note in that passage, what does it say? By two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Talking about an oath that God made to Abraham in order to encourage Abraham's faith, the author of Hebrews says it is impossible for God to lie. So God's unchanging character and God's unchanging oath give double the surety of God's promises. Now just a few verses later, we come to verse 20 of chapter 7. And here we have another oath. God's character, Christ's eternality and his power over death, and God's oath that is unchanging. Remind us of the surety of God's promise based on the character of God himself. What God says, God does. And it is this same hope that undergirds God's promise. The same hope that God's word does not change because God does not change. The same hope that gave comfort to Abraham back in Hebrews 6.18 is the same hope that undergirds God's promise of a Savior who will ever live to intercede for us. How do I know that Jesus will ever live to intercede for me? How do I know that he won't change his mind, that he won't leave, that he won't die? Because he has conquered death and because God himself has promised it. So this truth leads the author of Hebrews to proclaim in Hebrews 7.22 so much more. 
so much more Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. Because he is not a priest by blood or by family. He is a priest because he has conquered death and because he has been sent by God and promised by God to be a priest forever. So much more. It is sure. In contrast, and I think this is important for us to note, again, given the temptation to his audience to return to the comforts of the law. I think we have to follow these, these, these contrasts that are kind of underflowing under this passage. They, verse 21, have not become priests without an oath, but he with an oath. The Levitical priests do not have a promise from God and of eternal priesthood. In fact, the author of Hebrews has already shown us that they were not an eternal priesthood. They had an end date. They were temporary, offering only temporary hope. But Jesus is a priest forever, offering an eternal hope. In fact, that's the direction the author goes next in verses 23 to 25, is not only this promised priest, He's a priest by God's promise, but also he's an eternal priest. Verse 23 to 25. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. That's a known fact. Throughout the Levitical priesthood, generation after generation after generation would rise up and then would die. And then would rise up and then would die. The effectiveness of the Levitical priesthood was limited by their own weaknesses. Death reigned over them. Just a few weeks ago, there was a story that came out about a Catholic priest in Phoenix, Arizona. I don't know if you read this story, but he was forced to resign from his position there in Arizona. The reason that he resigned was because for the past 20 years, he'd been using the wrong words when he baptized. And therefore, all the baptized, all the baptisms performed by him going all the way back to the early 2000s were considered to be invalid. He had been using the word, we baptize you, instead of I baptize you. That's a huge deal, especially in the Catholic Church. Why? Well, because what do they believe about baptism? They believe that, that baptism, they're not just testifying to their faith, but that they receive faith and they enter into the church. And so imagine being told in a works-based religion that your loved one, who's, who's already passed away, that they were never really part of the church, that they never really received faith. And not because they failed, but because their priest failed them. The effectiveness of the Levitical priests was limited by their own weaknesses. Men make mistakes. We are limited by our own sins and failures, and we are limited by our own mortality. And yet this morning, as we come to this passage, brothers and sisters, we rejoice. Because the point that the author of Hebrews is making is that our high priest is not limited by our weaknesses. 
He continues forever. And the application or the result of that fact is that the salvation that he offers is complete and without end. Look what the author of Hebrews says. There were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, why? Because he continues forever. This, this, this very eternality that God has promised, that Jesus has proven through his resurrection. Because he continues forever as an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, based on that fact, he is also able to save to the uttermost. The uttermost. Salvation that has no end, because our Savior has no end. And salvation that is complete in what it brings. It is complete and it is without end. He's able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. Why? Again, I think the author of Hebrews wants us to get this because he's repeating it again for the millionth time. Why? Because he always lives to make intercession for them. Our hope is tied to the, to the fact that our priest lives. That he will never die. That he is ever before God pleading for us. God's eternal word is the foundation on which our hope and an eternal salvation through a death-conquering, ever-living Savior rests. It is sure, it is eternal, and it is unchanging. Our eternal priest brings us an eternal hope. Next, verse 26 to 28. He's not only the promised priest by the, God, by the promise of God. He's not only an eternal priest. He's a holy priest. And thus we come to that one unexciting word from our title, fitting. For such a high priest was fitting for us. What high priest? What is fitting for us? He is holy, harmless, undefiled, separated from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. Who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices for uh, first, for his own sins, and then for the people, for this he did once and all when he offered up himself. A better sacrifice from a better priest. Fitting here does not mean just barely enough. Like a sheet that you can barely get to fit your bed. Those fitted sheets are the worst when you're trying to get them in, and they, they maybe shrunk a little bit and you can barely get it over the corner. That's not the idea here. Fitting as in ju just barely enough. But fitting as in all that we need and more. Fitting as in eternal. Imperfect people need a perfect priest. And Jesus is exactly what we need. And God, in his infinite wisdom, sent him to us. Not just anyone, but his son. His son, as verse 28 goes on to tell us, for the law appoints as high priests men who have weaknesses. Verse 28 really kind of sums up all of the argument that the author of Hebrews is making. The law appoints high priests 
men who have weaknesses. But the word of the oath, right, God's oath, appointed Jesus, this oath which came after law, appoints the Son, Jesus Christ, his own Son who's been perfected forever. God did not just send anyone, he sent his Son, sent by his promise to be our, our perfect high priest forever, as verse 28 promises. Because our high priest is fitting, our hope is eternal. Our salvation is to the uttermost. Jesus is our perfectly fitting high priest, sent by the Father, Father, made perfect through suffering, as Hebrews 5, 8 to 10 tell us, and yet found to be righteous, risen from the dead, conquering death, eternal in nature, The fitting priesthood of Jesus Christ is good news for you and for me. And to our entirely hopeless situation, God sent an eternally, perfectly fitting high priest. And so what does this mean for us? How does this apply? First, if you're here this morning and, you never, and you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, I want to tell you that salvation is possible to the uttermost. Full salvation is possible, not by works, not in anything that you can do, not by the fact that you're here at church this morning or that you gave an offering, not by the fact that some priest maybe baptized you or told you he baptized you as a baby those things don't bring hope your hope real salvation to the uttermost is in Jesus Christ alone and salvation is is when you come to him when your eyes are open to your sin and when you submit to Jesus Christ and you confess that he is Lord And salvation is in Him alone. And I need Jesus. Won't you come even this morning and place your faith in Him? Fully. Lean on His everlasting arms, even as we sang this morning. Trust in Him alone. And be saved. And find an eternal, fitting high priest. Secondly, for those of us who are believers already. This passage, I think, offers encouragement and hope to us. It reminds us of that, of that hope that we know and yet we so often forget. In fact, maybe this last week, you were frustrated. Maybe it's the circumstances of life that have you frustrated. Maybe it's family circumstances. Maybe it's a health struggle. Maybe it's difficulties at work. Maybe it's your failure as a, as a parent or as a husband or as a wife or as a friend or as a son or a daughter. Brothers and sisters, a passage like this reminds us that there is hope. That yes, we are failures. But there is hope. 
Maybe you're here this morning after falling back into that sin that so easily besets you. That same thing that you promised you would not do again. And yet here you are. Whether it's pornography, or drunkenness, or pride, or anger, or gossip, or lying, or maybe it's a struggle with homosexuality. Whatever it is, confess and get up and find forgiveness and find hope to move forward. So often in our fight against sin, I think we can feel hopeless. But you're not hopeless. Because we have a high priest who continues forever. And so if you fail, get up and try again. And get up and try again. And get up and try again. Because you will never outwear his patience. You will never outlast him. Trust in him. Lean into him. Confess your sins and find forgiveness and hope and strength to move forward. Don't give up. He will never give up on you.